0: This is Isolated Together, a pandemic podcast by Quinnipiac University. I'm David DeRoche. If you're a parent of a school aged child, this episode is for you. If you're a parent of a child with a disability, this episode is especially for you. Now, I don't have kids, but I've been hearing from a lot of people that it's been a real challenge working from home, trying to teach kids at home during this pandemic. And it's gotta be even harder for parents who are essential workers. You know, How do they teach their kids if they themselves aren't even at home? I can imagine for a lot of parents, they can't afford to have somebody come, or even if you can't afford, who's really willing to come to your house to teach your kids during these times? And imagine if your kid has a disability, the challenges are often magnified because of the increase in need. So I'm really excited about this episode because we're going to talk about this stuff. We have joining me today as attorney Jennifer Laviano, who's actually an alum of the Quinnipiac University Law School. So that's awesome. Welcome, Jen. Uh, Jen has a private practice in Sherman, Connecticut, where she focuses on special education law, representing children and adolescents, helping them get an appropriate education, which they're entitled to under federal law. So we're gonna get a little bit more into what the law actually is, and we'll try to make it as uh, conversational as we can, because we know this stuff can get um, pretty legally pretty quick with a lot of legal jargon and stuff. But we want uh, folks to listen and uh, not be uh, dissuaded by some of the language. And Jen and Julie, I think are great at that. They've been doing this for a long time, so they understand how to communicate this stuff. And Jen is also co-author of a book called Your Special Education Rights, What Your School District Isn't Telling You. And lucky for our listeners, the other co-author of this book is also with us, Julie Swanson. Julie works as a special education advocate, helping parents navigate the complicated world of special education with all its jargon and acronyms, which I just alluded to. Both Jen and Julie have a really long history in this field. They've served on task forces, on national panels. They've done a lot uh, to educate people about these issues. So really excited to have Jen and Julie here. So thanks for being on Jen and Julie.
1: Thanks Thank you.
0: We're so, so thrilled. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. So Julie, so maybe because you guys have a, a long history of collaborating, can you just talk about how you all met and how you all got into the work you're doing?
2: Absolutely. And, and, and once again, thank you so much for having us on. We're really, we are glad to be able to talk about this topic and it's a very important one. So yes, going back to how we met. So, you know, I have a child who is 25 years old, who has autism, who's on the autism spectrum. And back in 1994, when he was diagnosed, it was literally a one in a million uh incidents mm. and um it was what's autism what's aba applied behavior analysis and it was before cell phones it was before computers right. well com- there was you know everybody was like oh I wonder if these computer
0: things were- right it wasn't <laughs> ubiquitous yet yeah, yeah
2: right. and i had to look up autism in a set of 1950s encyclopedia that pretty much Oof. was pretty grim And, you know, I cried for 48 hours straight. I mean, it was a a very different time than it is now. But unfortunately, um, you know, uh, many people who have children with autism may partially and or use a a methodology by the name of applied behavior analysis. And when we asked for um, our school district to run a program using that approach with my son, it was a flat-out refusal, and and very unfortunately, I had to engage in a due process with my school district, um, and I unilaterally placed my son at a private school, which meant at our own expense, we paid him, we placed him there while we were um, unfortunately engaged in this in this um, this battle. I retained Jennifer's father, the esteemed attorney. Bill Laviano. Um, he was a, a a great man who unfortunately has passed. But Bill was our attorney. And we were into the hearing. And one day he couldn't make a hearing date. And he said, well, you know what, I'm going to have my daughter come. And she just graduated from from law school. We're like, Wait wait a minute!
0: minute.
2: (laughs) Got a little nervous. We got a little nervous, and um, Bill was a passionate man, (laughs) um, and um, let's just say some sparks flew, (laughs) and um, he. I'm going to let Jen
0: take it from there.
2: Okay, so, <laughs> so what happened next? Yes, so, and
1: I'm sorry, my office phone, I can't turn off. But it's, it's all
0: right. You're busy. Well, it's good to be busy. But then, it's, I, as you all know, in your field, it's good to be busy. But also, it's kind of sad that you have work, which you know, we've talked about a lot. But anyway.
1: So, yeah. So Bill was a very passionate 400-pound Italian litigator man. <laughs> is the, what is the other piece? I, picture, that it, I can picture it. him immediately. He looked like Bob Riley. <laughs> yes. And so he yes. kind of strong, strong-armed Julie and her husband into being open-minded it to my presence and mm-hmm. I was really grateful for his throwing me right under the bus there but um the <laughs> minute that Julie and I met and her husband as well we hit it off and thankfully were able to resolve their matter down the road. Yeah. And, um, you know, ever since then, Julie and I have been friends and colleagues. Julie then became an advocate professionally representing families. And for years and years and years, Julie stalked me. I mean, there's really <laughs> no other word, for it. She stopped me. And, um, it, it, uh, you know, we'd go out to dinner and I thought we were just having a nice girls' night out. And soon into it, she'd say, I really think you and I need to get together and put out some... Either a radio show or a TV show or a book about these issues, and for the longest time I resisted it, thinking, you know, if people want to hear from a lawyer, they'll they'll hire a lawyer. They're not going to want. Who wants to hear from a lawyer? As you said, you know, <laughs> right. half the time we sound ridiculous. But she convinced me over time that there was a real need for this, and that, and I started paying more attention to how mainstream culture excludes people with disabilities or treats them in a very Offensive way, often either by ignoring them or putting them in a light that's really not fair, or by infantilizing them. You know, and we pity them, these poor people. And I became more and more in tune to that, and realized that that was as much an obstacle to my being successful for my clients as anything else was the cultural perception of people with disabilities. And so, Julie and I—I don't know how many years ago—my oldest was in an infant carrier, so we're going on probably 14 years ago. Started. Originally, we started with a radio show and then we did, you know, uh, um, some website stuff and a blog. And eventually we developed this very comprehensive video based website with a professional producer that has hundreds of videos called YourSpecialEducationRace.com, hundreds of videos to help parents navigate this very complicated system in a way that makes sense without having to look at the law. And we try very hard to break down that legalese into common understanding and understandable language. And then eventually we wrote our book,
2: which we're very thrilled about as well. Real quick, Dave, I should just say, you know, I had a background as a television producer. I was in public relations. So when my child was diagnosed with autism, I saw the world very differently from the media's eyes. And like, why isn't anybody talking about disability issues? And I pitched myself on local television stations, you know, doing disability related stories. And eventually the producers came to me and said, nobody wants to talk about disabilities. I think it was a little bit before my time, Um, but now people are, right? But the reason that we did the website was as a parent, I always said to Jen, we're the one-two punch. You're the attorney, I'm the advocate, I'm the parent. So that's a very nice mix of of how we want people to trust the information that we have. And um, we wanted to break down this law, the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and other disability related laws into easily digestible chunks of information because if you read it in a book while it, nothing none of it is rocket science it's a bit overwhelming so right. we wanted to just bring it to people so that they could understand it and and really break it down and simplify it so
0: right And I think that's super important. And, 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 you know, that's part of the reason we're talking today is to offer a glimpse of that uh, attempt to, you know, break it down and simplify it uh, in the context of this pandemic. And just for listeners who might not be super familiar with special education law, so Julie alluded to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which uh, in simplest terms, it just requires students with disabilities to receive an appropriate education. Now, again, it's a lot more complicated than that. How we define appropriate changes, everybody has different definitions of that. And that's sort of why Jen has a job because of that that one small point that's overly simplifying the law but that's sort of the basics for it. So, but in the context of now, I mean, Jen alluded to this a minute ago where she said part of the problem that they have as attorneys and advocates is sort of is fighting against this culture that either infantilizes people with disabilities or perceives them as uh as not having much value or as a drain on society. And in a context of now where we're in a pandemic situation where you know, we have, we're actually labeling certain people as essential workers. We're already sort of categorizing people in this way. You know, How is that affecting people with disabilities who might already see themselves in this way because of what society is always telling them, that, you know, that you're not valuable, but now you're in a situation where people are locked away, people are not able to go to school, people are not able to socialize, all these different things are happening. Can, so I, this, there's a lot in that sort of idea, but I'm wondering from your perspective, working with students and families, what sort of things have you been seeing as a result of this pandemic? What sort of things are families telling you? What sort of issues are they experiencing?
1: Sure. So, like the rest of the country and the world, um, it's evolved, right, during the pandemic. So, initially, and we're in Connecticut, so we're in, you know pretty close to the hottest zone there is in New York City. And in fact, I'm one you know one town away from the border of New York. So, we're we're close, and so we are very much impacted in this part of the country by school closures. They happened early, and they happened. Throughout the state, and we are not reopened yet. In the first week after the announced closure and where everyone was starting to lock down, I think it's fair to say that everyone was in a panic. Um, Everyone, including school district uh, staff and parents, and Governors and a state yeah. directors of special ed, they didn't even know what to do. They did not know what to do. And in the, that first week, none of us were really organized in our thought process about what to do during a school closure for our kids who have disabilities, because everyone just seemed like we were going to possibly not have any school. Within the first couple of weeks, school districts started to say, OK, what's our plan? What's our distance learning plan? Let's get those together. Then we went through a couple of additional weeks where that plan was pretty much focused on regular education students, which of course is the average, it's the largest population of student are regular education students. So about 15% give or take of of the school age population are students with disabilities. So it makes sense that you'd be programming for 85%. What we were starting to become very concerned about um, in the advocacy community, and as um, those who are very intimately aware with what families are going through is that the impact of school closures on students with disabilities is profoundly greater than it is on students mm. who do not have disabilities. Thankfully, our leadership at almost every level has acknowledged this. That's good. Um, which is so I can't say that enough because you know, for kids who are maybe gonna go three months without instruction and then start school up again in the fall you know maybe they're not going to graduate at the same level they would have uh, in math and reading instruction but they're going to go back to school and they're going to see their friends and they're going to move on with their lives and everyone will be sort of at the same even playing field
2: right
1: with our clients some of whom you know rely all day some of them 24 hours a day for residentially placed students on the support of the adults in their lives and the educators in their lives that impact is profound. Um, and then many students in between, you know, where, um, you know, if, if you're a student who accesses your, your education in the mainstream as a student with a disability, but all day you have a one-to-one paraprofessional who's with you. Mm-hmm. And now you're supposed to be home without the only one-to-one you might have is your parent. And as you said, your parents probably have to work from home as well it's really been almost impossible for some of those students to access their education. And when they go back to school, whenever that happens, they won't just be a little behind. They may have regressed by years, Um, It's very worrisome
0: to us. Mm. So you mentioned how school districts were like everybody, right? When this started happening, nobody was really prepared. I mean, maybe there were some, you know, Fortune 500 companies that could afford to do sort of a risk analysis to, to figure out how they'd handle something like this. But most people, especially public schools, not really ready to handle something like this. But I guess over time, sort of figuring out, you know, some solutions, are there any sort of solutions, Julie, I'll ask you, have you seen any districts come up with solutions that you feel... Were creative and that are, are working for some kids?
2: Well, I, you know, let me, let me say one thing before I, I sort of answer that. Sure. Um, there are many students for whom, regardless of the type of innovation you come up with, this is not working. Right. And that's happening for a lot of students with autism spectrum disorders or other developmental disabilities. I'm not saying that it's just those, but where this distance learning thing is not working and regardless of how innovative you get, it's not happening. You know, I, And then I think there are kids who are thriving with the distance learning. Honestly, I don't think we're there yet where there's any breakthrough innovation to take us to the next level of where we need to be. It's my own personal thought that we need to get really good at this because I don't think this is the end of this. Mm. And it could, who knows how long this can go on. Um, Mm. I wish I could say there was something super innovative happening. Uh, I can tell you some of the really good things that are going on, you know, the communication between teams and parents the distance learning, just the fact that people are actually doing it in and of itself is an innovation um, that everybody was sort of forced into. So I do think that, and I think some of the good things that are happening is for many parents, they're really starting to understand what's been happening in their child's special education programs, how their child learns, and to the opposite maybe how their child really isn't learning. Mm. So I think all sorts of things are being revealed. Jen, do you think there's some great innovation going on that I've missed? There have been more and more developing out of the, out of the gate. And this is you know no, not
1: to be pejorative towards public schools by any means, but we, Julie and I both have a number of clients who are in private placements. They're usually private special ed placements. They're not prep schools generally. They're private schools that cater to, to students with disabilities. Yep. Right. I will say that my view and my experience, the private sector jumped in much more quickly and with much mm-hmm. more of a right. plan um, than the public sector, at least in Connecticut, and with exceptions on both sides. I have some, some sure. private school students where you're thinking, for this amount of money, you couldn't put together a plan for a month. Right. Um, right. And, and other public school programs that are being really creative. So structure is a big par- part of it. Uh, the ones that have seemed to be working really well is where there's a set schedule, including an opportunity, because so many kids right now are just missing seeing their peers. Mm. And so that opportunity where through Zoom or right. other platforms, you can actually see your friends and they can see you. Yeah. Those are tend to be helpful for, for many kids. I've seen some directors use resources that they are already committed to providing for various reasons, because they're, they have contracts with, um, with teachers and with outside providers, where they've Use those contracts and switch those resources to a different purpose. So um, uh, using paraprofessionals who can't be in that classroom one to one with the student to support students who also have services, but who are maybe usually achieving well, but are now just kind of shut down, and so using that person to be the touch point when parents work and can't really do that. So mm-hmm. shifting of those resources. One thing that I heard talk of, but I'm not sure if it's happened anywhere, was districts using some of their buses, and because they pay m- many districts pay private transportation companies, they don't own their own buses. In a lot of districts, at least in Connecticut, yeah. using some of those buses to set up Wi-Fi in some of our urban yeah. areas that where one. families yeah. don't have access to Wi-Fi in, in that community. Yeah. So there's there's stuff going on, or at least being talked about, and I and I hope we'll continue to innovate.
0: So that's really interesting. So are there any personal stories that you guys can share? And obviously, there are confidentiality issues. So you can't get too specific. But are, are there any specific stories where a a good story, like a story where the district was like, "Hey, this is this cool thing we can do for this this child," and and now that child is somehow getting a better education because now, to your point. Uh, through this process, parents are getting sort of like an inside look at, how, at what their children's education is because now they're present for that education. So maybe the parents now can say, oh my God, this is just a really cool thing, um, or this is terrible. So two parts, like, are there any examples of uh, a child that may- maybe wasn't doing so great under in a traditional school environment, now they're thriving, and then the flip side of that, are any children that maybe they were doing pretty good and now they're not doing so hot? Do you guys have any examples of clients maybe you could share
1: sure i have a few clients who have more traditional learning disabilities like dyslexia um so the the more standard learning disability where very often that kind of instruction is being provided in a resource room classroom right. with that student and three four or five others and the teacher and a paraprofessional and a lot of times, there's a disagreement about whether that that method of instruction is effective for students because parents question, and sometimes with very good reason, and sometimes not, whether or not that is really being individualized for their child. Because if you have five kids, each of whom are on a different grade level, we yeah. worry, and we have are finding during this time period that what the the easy thing to do is to rely on the other adult to sort of work with the other kid while you're working th- with this child, and then while the teacher is moving from student to student, what we worry happens is the hour of instruction is really 20 minutes of direct instruction for that child or 20, you know, 15 minutes. minutes. Now, because of this pandemic, many students are getting truly individualized one-to-one instruction from their special ed teacher for the hour. And um, I have a, handful of clients who are reporting to me seeing pretty significant improvement in those students.
0: Wow, and that's awesome, and that seems like such a, a no-brainer too for for anybody. Like the more time you have with a teacher, the better you'll do. But that's also something it seems like you guys have probably been fighting for for years and years and years. And it takes something like this for it to become apparent. Like I wonder what that's like for you guys.
2: It makes blessing, well, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine.
2: I could tell you, you know, to answer that question from my perspective, Dave, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been encouraging parents to do is to use a very underutilized, underappreciated related service called parent training. A related service is an ancillary service to special education, whether it's speech and language, occupational therapy, transportation, counseling. And one of the related services is parent training and it's it's to help a parent understand how their child learns and to help them be part of the team and and, and understand how they can succeed. Um, So I've been saying to a lot of parents, take this as an opportunity to ask for parent training from your team as to how you could be helping them from home or setting up a different system, whether it's a behavior support plan or whatever. What I see needs to happen and that we need to figure out a way is for many students who are not able to do this distance learning, I think we actually need IEP goals, Individualized Education Program goals, right? That's like, Johnny will learn how to do X, Y, Z in a year's time, a goal that actually works on kids being able to be available for this distance learning on a screen, which is a whole other paradigm, right? And I think we need to help kids who that may not come naturally to them to sort of figure out how to do that. I think that's a really big challenge. And I think from my perspective with, for many students, we need to get better at that. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Jen. I couldn't
1: agree with you more because you know even if you know we're we're again in a, in a part of the country where we're still locked down and um, according to our governor we will still be closed through at least May twentieth virtually everyone thinks we're going to be closed through the end of the school year and may not even be in a position to open for what we call extended school year, which is Mm -hmm. summer services for students. So we may be looking at a six month gap, if not more for Mm -hmm. some of these students. And then many of the health professionals are predicting another wave in the fall or winter. So we need to be planning now for those kids who can't access their education this way, because otherwise we have no plan. And um, you know, the, the, one of the more compelling things I heard from a mother who was talking about how much this is impacting her family was that even on weekends, their son would regress um, during when school was open, they would, you know, leave on Friday and by Monday morning that there, they would see regression. And there are some kids for whom that is true that every skill is hard fought for. Every focus is on just Maintaining and then hopefully developing new skills, and it is it requires constant attention by all of the the adults. And this mother said, you know, we would deal with that, but Monday morning the bus would come, and we would move on to another week of trying to get back to some progress. And now she said, you know, there's no Mondays anymore. We're in a world of no Mondays, mm. and that's true for these families. Mm. There is no they are 24 seven on call, and and one of the worries of this population of this most significantly impacted is that if the behavior becomes such that either the student is at risk to themselves or others, the last thing anyone wants right now is to end up in the hospital over something like that. Or, you know, I mean, many of our clients, unfortunately families have to call 911 for Mm -hmm. psychiatric hospitalizations or just Mm -hmm. to deescalate a situation. Nobody wants to be in an emergency room right now. Okay. So especially if you don't need to. So we need to have uh, contingency plans for these students so that whether it's, you know, the rest of this school year or in November, we have a plan for how students like that can distance learn. I couldn't agree with Julie more.
0: And it seems like that would be something that could benefit all students because you know I can imagine this being so new for for everybody that every student would benefit from figuring out how to best learn in a distance environment.
2: Yeah. I've one client yeah. who has a, a you know their the sister the sibling Is a regular education student, and she reported to me that her other child is thriving and never really wants to go back to regular school. Oh, I can
0: imagine. Um, Yeah. You know, so there are a lot of
2: kids like that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I can imagine it being a very double-edged sword. um, Something like this, you know. And when I when I mentioned you know earlier how it seems so obvious that a child would thrive once they have an actual hour of one-to-one instruction versus in a in an actual classroom where they might have been receiving fifteen or twenty minutes, you know, some people might immediately jump to, well, that's also you know resource. You know, how do we have how can we afford to have a teacher do that um, one to one in a a school environment? And I think and this is something that might create some disagreement among us or uh, people listening. But as far as my understanding of the law goes, a a child's disability has to impact their access to their education in some way, whether it's their their grades or their emotional um, adaptation or their social skills has to impact their education in some sort of way. And so the theory then is, so if the the general education environment is more robust, stronger, then some of the students, some of the needs that they have now under the present system, maybe they wouldn't require such specialized education. And so I'm just wondering if this environment has highlighted that sort of the flaws within the general education environment.
2: I have a thought to that. You know, I think regardless of where you're being educated, okay, a skill deficit is a skill deficit is a skill deficit. And so, you know, there may be many kids that they're impacted differently, so they may not need an accommodation that they would in, in, in the public school or a modification. But I still think for the, the lion's share of students, the skill deficit is still going to be there regardless of what setting they're in. Jen?
1: Yeah, agreed. It is an interesting question, Dave. And yeah. say, I'll say this, we've been talking among ourselves um, in our community about the ways in which education may never be the same. I mean, we're, we as a society, we are asking each o- ourselves and each other important questions about whether what was normal should be normal again, whether we want to go back to some of the frenetic pace and the, yeah. you know. I mean, I haven't driven my car more than, right you know, 10 minutes this week. I usually put 30,000 miles a year on my car. You know, I mean, <laughs> wow. it, it's a big difference, right? So, um, and so we should be asking these questions. One of the things that's frustrating for me about the culture of public education is that when you ask a question about a new idea, you know, uh, why don't we try this for this child? You know, Because the IDEA requires unique, um, that we consider the unique needs of the child and that all programming be indi- individualized to that child. And so when Julie and I go into a meeting and, and sometimes say, well, for this child, we're asking for this. And, and it's not something they've done before, much like Julie's case was 20 something years ago.
2: Yes. The
1: answer we often get is, we don't do that here. And when you say why, they say, because that we've never done it that way. And so we may now have to do things differently. And what we may find out is that for all students, you know, we don't need an eight hour day or a seven and a half hour school day. Now I'm very aware of the fact that leaving aside disability, most families are working parents. And if you have five and six year olds who are going to school, they can't be home half the day if you want to have a full-time job. And so unless we're going to dramatically change the workforce, Um, and, and obligations on employers, that that is not likely to be a reality unless we switch our schools into also perhaps being something of a daycare. Um, provider, right. which I'm not sure they want to be. So when I have students um, that I work with who go on what we call homebound tutoring, let's just say I'm going to play out a hypothetical, which isn't as fraught with really complex disability, but sometimes students go through a difficult period in their life where they cannot, no longer attend school, sometimes just for a medical reason. And so the doctor recommends that in, that the child should receive what's called, home, in Connecticut, homebound tutoring. In Connecticut, that typically looks like 10 hours of a week, a week of instruction, which is two hours per core academic area, let's assume for a high schooler. Okay. And parents will say 10 hours a week, he's in school from, you know, eight o'clock to three o'clock, five days a week. How can we possibly keep up if he's only going to get it 10 hours a week of instruction? And I say, you'll be surprised. Mm. And what usually happens is with that one-to-one individualized instruction, the kid sometimes surpasses the grade level before the tutoring is over and is doing better and farther along in the curriculum than they were in the mainstream classroom. And some of that's logic, you know, 25 kids in the class versus one-to-one, you can be much more concentrated and productive and individualized. We may find that we don't need to have the resources applied the way they are now. But we also are likely to come to a realization that there, and something Julie and I've said for 20 years now, (laughs) education is more than just academics, right? What are kids missing the most, for the most part right now, is is social interaction, is secure interaction. That's what they're missing. If if this experience has highlighted
2: nothing else, it's how how school is about so much more than just math, reading, and writing. Right. And if I could just interject there, I do advocacy with parents and helping them get secure appropriate special education services for all disabilities. But I do an awful lot with autism because my son has autism. People come to me because they know that I'm so connected to autism and understand autism. So I, I do a lot of autism. And for my clients and my families with whom I work, whose children have autism, What I'm seeing now is what I've been saying for so, so long, that you've got to teach the adaptive and the life skills. In fact, I'm going to plug a little something here. I'm going to be launching a website called the Life Skills Lady. And it's a a website devoted exclusively to teach life skills and adaptive skills for children who are on the autism spectrum, because these are the skills we need for adulthood. These are the skills we need to navigate everyday life. And they often get a bad rap but even just change, okay, I'll give you an example. So many kids w- who have autism were have had their worlds rocked by the fact that this abrupt change happened. Well, I believe very strongly that the, the most important skill that we all should have, but especially for many kids with developmental disabilities or autism, is the ability to be flexible and to have something happen that we didn't expect and mm-hmm. we are able to go with it. This is such an important life skill. That's an adaptive skill, right? So for me and many of the parents uh, and the students um, with whom I work who have these types of disabilities, these issues have become glaring, the life skills and the adaptive skills.
0: Well, like I gotta tell you, it's uh, it certainly has highlighted deficits in my own adaptive skills. Um, okay. you know, I thought I was flexible, and then this happens. So I'm like, eh, I'm not that flexible. Um, but, but, and but, I think you know a lot of things you guys are talking about are very interesting because they're issues that people like yourselves, people who have been on the side advocating for people with disabilities, for students with disabilities for a very long time, but actually communicating that to the general population, people who don't have any connection to anybody with disabilities, is always a challenge because that is sort of where that cultural challenge comes from, comes from people who don't have any connection to disability in any kind of way. But it seems like the pandemic having created an environment that highlights all these little holes that are present within education that become very apparent now uh, whereas before it might've been harder to point them out, whereas now you can easily point them out because you, you, have, you have like a comparison, right? You have, a, you have the group now, how they are now and how they were in the past, and you can easily compare those, those groups and those students and see how they were doing. So I'm wondering like from your perspective, and you've pointed out a lot of these already or some of the issues of the regular education system that are becoming apparent now, but do you feel like this environment now is sort of forcing them to sort of recognize those weaknesses and make adaptations, not necessarily, you know, through technology, but just in how they're thinking about educating kids, because now they're forced to think about it in this sort of different way. I I hope so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I hope so too. And I think one area where I really hope this may prove to be a, a groundswell of change when school reopens um, for years, those of, in the, of us in the disability community have been talking about trauma-informed instruction, trauma-informed discipline. Mm-hmm for years, because many, many students who have disabilities also have trauma um, in early childhood, particularly children who are um, in the foster care system or otherwise um, have had to go through that experience. Uh, We know that there will probably be children, we know there will be children, not probably, who are traumatized simply from the pandemic, uh, especially those who are already susceptible because of anxiety disorders or or, um, Mm -hmm. other kinds of vulnerabilities. So what I'm hoping is when school reopens, one of the things Things we really start to have a conversation about nationally is that our long-standing punitive approach to discipline mm. has been proven over and over and over again to be highly ineffective and in fact in some cases extraordinarily harmful not just to the student in question but to the educational community because very disaffected students ultimately become very angry students Mm-hmm. that we can take another look at that because we know that this is just not the approach that makes sense. It's not the approach envisioned by the law. And it shouldn't be the approach that is taken with either regular ed students or ed students.
2: You know, Dave, I do think it's going to force innovation. You know, I think, let's think about it this way. Even when school does come back, there may be many staff who still aren't comfortable coming back into a, a public school system. There may be parents who say, even though you're starting up, I'm not sending my child into that Petri dish. How do we stop children from touching things and then touching their face and then social distancing? It's impossible. I'm not sure it's possible, right? Yeah. And so we have to, it's go, I, I, it has to force innovation. Yeah. yeah. To. I mean, I know one of the things that I've heard nationally is maybe this rollout where there's a half a day for half of the school population, And then the other half a day, it's the other half of the school population and then vice versa. They're at home. I'm not sure how it's all going to happen, but I don't think it's going to be poof. One day school is back and then everything goes back to normal. I just don't see it happening.
0: So here's a million dollar question. What can parents do now? Parents who are sort of thrust into this environment Obviously, raising children with disabilities, they already are aware of the needs of their child. But now they're acutely aware of it because they're either having to spend all day with their children or they're having to go to, go to work and figure out who is with my child because I'm an essential employee I have to actually leave are there resources are you seeing any resources out there that can help parents navigate this or is anybody uh,
1: one thing that we've done Julie and I are both on the executive board of an, our state organization known as seek SEek which is special education equity for kids um, our website is seekCT.com. We have on our school closure page a data collection form that we developed as SEEK. It's supposed to be a weekly data collection form for families. And the idea behind it is this, and it would work for many families, even parents of kids who don't have IEPs. But it essentially takes the various areas of focus like behavioral, academic, fine motor, gross motor, social communication, all those things. Okay. It takes those areas and breaks them down into a grid and it's designed so that every week you can stay on top of your child's skill levels during this closure, because we're pretty confident that whether it's good or bad news, how a child ends this school year and the period of closure is going to be very different from how they entered it. And mm. so a kid may enter this this school closure period where, where their reading level was at a three and now it's at a six, which is great news, or they may enter at a six and end up at a three, you know, it right. may be that your child's behavior was fairly compliant 90% of the time prior to school closure and is now compliant only 20% of the time. Mm. Either way, both the team receiving the child when school reopens and the family need to make sure that when we send these kids back, we know exactly where, where they are as a baseline and where we want them to be because we're going to have to reassess where we want them to be in the spring is a very common time um, in, in Connecticut and elsewhere to plan for that next school year. And some of the planning already happened for kids before school closed. And so mm. we may be entering the fall with a very different, what we call present levels of performance mm. for these students. So keeping track of data is one thing they need, they need to be doing and can be doing now and communication, communication, communication. If you're struggling, if you're just not able to get it done, you should be in regular contact with your administration or your principal or your case manager or your teacher, whomever you have the closest and more regular line of communication with saying, this isn't working, this is why it's not working, do you have any help that you can offer us? And you know, do so as we encourage districts to do with uh, mutual respect. And with um, a real sense of the fact that everyone is operating in a period of time where we don't have available to us our, all of all of our usual tools, but we also have available some tools we didn't have before.
0: And I think you made a really interesting point when you first started talking about that, is that this would be valuable for for parents of of kids not in special education. Because probably the big challenge, I imagine, is staying organized, you know, figuring out, you know, how are you supposed to structure the day, how are you supposed to know whether your kid is 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 learning or not, and creating a structure or a system that works for you uh, is probably beneficial for all parents. You know, when I first got introduced to these complexities years ago, as a reporter at the Darien Times, one of the things that became apparent to me was that a lot of these, a lot of the individualized education plans that are being developed for students with disabilities could be beneficial for all students. If all students, like ultimately in like the perfect world, if all students had an individualized education program, you know, that was tailored to them, I imagine that it would just change how we think about educating kids, rather than just throwing them into a room and saying, "Okay, this is we're going to teach twenty five of you the exact same way," and that's the way we've been doing it since the eighteen hundreds. You know, now if every child had that program, there would be that individual
1: instruction. And this is why the Montessori models have been popular for many years, is that's the concept, and there are varying levels of success with that. You know, I will say that the whole movement within education for differential instruction in general is supposed to work that. You know, we as you know, uh, an educational system in our country do teach to the bell curve. And so there are many, I hear from parents and from family members and friends all the time, how frustrating it is that if you're, you know, looking at a bell curve of ability and performance, if your child's well within that 25 to 75th percentile, either way, you know, most of the time, regular education works for that group, right? Right. Um, All other things not being factored in, including a number of issues surrounding equity and-, and Sure,
0: uh, socioeconomics, all that Yeah,
1: stuff. exactly. Um, however, you know, students who have- or extremely at the high end of the the bell curve, either because they're extraordinarily gifted, right. or because they perform far above their peers in some major ways that, that um, we can quantify. There's no law that protects those students federally. Some right. states have some laws surrounding giftedness, but many of those students are as much struggling with their day-to-day educational experiences for in different ways than students at the other end of the spectrum. Right. And you know, there's there's many ways is we have to be much more thoughtful about how we're providing education and also i hope we're all learning from this i mean we'll say of course we you know there's some truth in jest i keep seeing these memes from parents about you know realizing how hard teachers work when they're now being asked to be the teacher you know my favorite was I realize you've been lying to me all these year- years. My child is not a pleasure to have in
2: class. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's <laughs> very, very funny. Yeah. Yeah. My a- child is not a pleasure to have. In class. <laughs> <Right? Exactly. laughs>
1: the parents are getting a, a little insight into what their ch- children yeah. are like yeah. as learners and as the- they are their pupils during this time. Either also, you I'm hopeful got- reverse is true. I'm hoping the teachers are starting to see that when the parent was saying, because, you know, the nature of education is, Kids usually get a new teacher every year, but they have the same parents most of the time. And so when a parent says, you know, when right. they're the in seventh grade, that's not going to work. And the teacher says, sure, well, it always works for kids like your kid. And the mom's like, you know, I'm really pretty sure that's not going to work. Yeah. And now when we're able to say, <laughs> you no, know, it doesn't work. Yeah. I'm hoping that yeah. that's there's creating some mutual respect.
0: You know, that's a really interesting point because, you know, I think most of this time I've been focusing on sort of, you know, parents with their kids, obviously, because I think, you know, that's a situation that is very immediate. That's the thing I think about. I think about, you know, parents now trying to figure out how to educate their kids, but then you think about what it's like for the school district. Everybody has almost been forced into the seat of the other person, right? Now, so now parents are actually see their, student, their, par- t- uh, their their teacher's point of view. Teachers might now see the parent's point of view because, you know, they've sort of swapped. And so there's like you're forced to be empathetic. And I imagine that that's an environment which should nurture some pretty cool like uh, change, it's, it would seem. And you guys have already talked about some of that stuff.
2: The other change that has to happen is instead of schools and businesses being in two separate silos – this, these communities have to come together because it's not a long-term sustainable solution that a person who's working from home and overseeing their kid's education and doing all the OCD cleaning that we all have to do mm-hmm. uh, during all of this, that's not sustainable. So we, I think we need a partnership between education and our corporations and our business mm. so that there is this ability to give and take when these things are going to happen. I'm hoping that's an innovation that also happens. How about the teachers who are also parents, Right, and they have to yeah. do their job while their kid is home, their child. I had a- I had a, a, an individualized education program meeting the other day. And, you know, everybody does it now on Zoom. You have the whole panel of people. Yep. And there was a teacher, God bless her. She's in one room. And I could see her kid behind her was sitting at the desk. And I could hear the distance learning going on. So she's working while her kid is, you know, and I'm oh, thinking, wow. oh, God. Well, that's <laughs> that kind of role reversal. You know, it's like a bad 80s movie or something. But that
0: kind yeah. of Yeah, yeah.
1: That role reversal has been so illustrative for for so many people. I I have many, many friends. I know Julie does too, just by what we do for a living, who are teachers. Um, We have a lot of teacher friends. And my teacher friends are really, you know, struggling with there's a role you play when you're a teacher, depending on the age you're teaching and and what your particular discipline is, where you don't want to necessarily have your students, especially like middle school students, seeing behind the curtain that, you know, you're a human too, right? Right. (laughs) Likewise, parents, you know, have for years had to, and I say this almost every time I present to teacher groups, I believe that there'd be so much less disagreement in special education if everyone who is a teacher started from the perspective that parents usually know more about their individual child than the teachers do, and parents Mm -hmm. understood that teachers generally know a lot more about education than they do. And if we could Mm -hmm. start from that premise and assumption of different experiences, but both extremely important, we'd probably... Mm -hmm. Not fight as much, and we mm. are aware, where most people aren't fighting. We're brought in when people are, and that's sure. right.
2: And we're big fans of the public school system. Okay. By we're the part way, of the, we, of the schools, we know we have to sometimes make comments that may be constructively critical, but you know we're.
1: we're it's we're, because we care about how they perform. It's because we want them to be successful that we yeah. operate from a system. Absolutely. Of you know, I think that there's going to be a lot of eye-opening conversation when schools reopen about how everyone learned a lot.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's fair to say that most people get into public education because they care about kids. And I I think the tension that you guys are experiencing are when things go go bad, they've been, right, they've been going bad for a while and then you guys get involved, but that's, hopefully that's not the typical situation. It happens sometimes, but generally, even if they disagree about the ability of the student, they still want that student to do well, right? Like they don't, nobody wants a child to like fail and do terrible, so you know, you're, it's, it's a complicated situation where schools feel like there's pressure to be successful. They want to educate these kids. There are all these different things happening. And in a way, as stressful as it is, you know, being forced to do these things, in a way, it almost allows us to take a breath as, you know, as we're sort of like stressing out over here in this one aspect of educating kids. We can maybe like kind of take a breath in this other way, if that's even possible to sort of imagine being stressed half of our body and the other half of our body breathing. But it seems like it is gives us that opportunity to do that.
1: That's actually a good descriptor of how I've been feeling almost this whole time is both (laughs) sleep and stress. Um, Equal parts shifting depending on the day and the weather. Those things. I do think, though, um, and this may be a little esoteric, but one of the biggest battles that Julie and I face and all advocates in this community is making sure, you know, every time the budget's due in any school district that everyone raises their hands up in the air about how expensive special education is. Oh, and yeah. we constantly try to explain to people that special education is not a cost, it's an investment. And if during this whole pandemic, you know, we've all heard the term, we've, we're all in this together over and over again, we're all in this together because, you know, right the fractures that we see will result in the consequences for everybody. If we take that global issue and we focus it on just the issue of special education, one of the things that people who don't have children with disabilities genuinely need to understand, leaving aside what's right, leaving aside what's mandated by law and all those things, to invest in special education means we as a society later have far less of a burden and that is because we are producing adults hopefully who have skills and even if those skills don't mean that they're an independent adult which is the goal but even if it doesn't mean that it may mean that they're not an, uh, that they're a dependent adult but are far less costly
2: dependent right. adult
1: right And let's also not forget about human potential. I mean, uh, when Stephen Hawking died, I said, can you imagine what this world would have lost if all people saw was his disability? What, What are we missing by kind of pushing aside these students and these individuals simply because they have a disability. And so there's, I'm hoping that maybe we all come out from this and realize the very important roles we each play in society and how we are all in this together. I know that sounds like, you know, a commercial. No,
0: no, not at all. Well, I think you, you you bring up a really important point that is sort of the crux of this conversation, which is, you know, in a pandemic situation, what is happening to our most vulnerable population? You know, we often talk about the older population or we talk about people with pre-existing conditions. Um, but we don't necessarily talk about people with disabilities and sort of the moral conversations that people have when they talk about ventilator access. If there's a situation where you have a, a you know, somebody with autism and, a, a, you know, somebody would not who not have autism and there's a fight over the ventilator. Do they have that conversation? You know, is that conversation something they even talk about? And so, uh, you know, these are the, it isn't sort of an esoteric topic, but it also forces us as a society to think you know how do we value human beings do we disvalue them equally or do we assign value based on this arbitrary set of standards that are you know based on just culture and history and right. but not necessarily humanity which right. is right. i think that's an important conversation to have it is
1: and if we're going to start doing that if we're going to start assigning value of life based on uh, any number of factors i'd like to add kindness above disability frankly but
0: absolutely and i mean that's a conversation for <laughs> yeah, an entire right? episode Six hours um, so you know. <laughs> but I, I, I love this conversation. I think it's important to talk about. And I, I'm grateful that you all do the work that you do. I know it's not easy. So you mentioned a resource that Seek is offering for parents. Are there any just sort of like common sense things or advice you could give to parents who are now having to, to educate their kids? Are there's just like a couple of bullet points things like maybe just be patient. I don't know. What, what, what kind of advice do you have? Julie, I'll start with you since you're a mom.
2: Well, yeah, you know, again, sometimes I don't answer your question exactly directly. (laughs) Well,
0: you were in TV, so I get it.
2: But I think what I really need to say in just as a comment to your question is there's been a movement across the United States with many parents um, of kids who have disabilities who are working and, and they can't do it. And they've said, and they're just putting it right out there. And they're saying, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Now, to answer your question, and back to something that Jen said, you know, the best advice is whatever, whether you're doing supremely well or you're doing terribly, you need to communicate with your special education team and tell them that. And if you're doing terribly, problem solve around it. What can we do? Let's think out of the box. What can we do? I think you just need to be incredibly honest and you need to ask for that parent training. How can I in this situation, what do I need to know to make this a more successful experience? Mm. Uh, but I thought it was just important for me to tell you that there is a movement out there where people are just like putting a stake in the ground and I ain't doing it.
0: Mm. Yeah. So what, what kind of impact do you think that's having?
2: My worry about that, yeah. yeah I'm
1: just being you know yeah. it's hard to not think like a lawyer sometimes. I hate to of say it. My, my worry about that is that there will be students who have really lost out during this time period, but they, they were already struggling before the closure. usually, if, it's, if it goes so badly, so quickly, things were not necessarily solid in terms of the students' skills before the closure, right. Not always, but usually. So my worry is if a parent then quickly becomes overwhelmed and says, forget it, I just can't do this, which I respect completely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, then when school reopens and the parent says, okay, we're back to business and I need to say that I feel like what happened is so reflective of my concerns that I've been expressing a long time that his skills were not solid; they were very fragile, and we see that they were not able to sustain during the school closure. The response will unfortunately be, "Well, we were offering services, and you refused them." And so I, I wish I didn't have to think cynically like that, but I've heard the argument many, many times before, and you know it's it's out there. I think we, just as Julie and I and our colleagues, spend tremendous amount of time every day these days, telling parents who might normally feel within their rights to gripe about certain things that if we say, you know, I'm, I, I'm not gonna pick that battle right now. I wouldn't pick that battle if I right now. That is not right. essential. Right. It is not something that would even be legally required. Let's be reasonable and triage our concerns. So, you know, yeah. take care of yourself, reach out for help, including yeah. parent training. If you feel like right. some parents are not, right you know, hands-on with their kids' homework or, or instruction right. and mm. trust
2: the school to do it. Now, all of a sudden, they don't even understand how it's implemented. Right. Well, you know that there's, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, of mom, if uh, mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was just, you know, talking with a parent recently and with their child's situation, their anxiety over the COVID situation is so great that this little child is not able to function. And the poor parent is absolutely beside herself because she's uh, th- this child is is so impacted by the worry and the anxiety that it's sort of shut everything down. What do you do as a parent when that when, when that, yeah. happens, you know, I mean, there's just some things you can't you can't you can't work your way out of. Um, yeah
1: answers sometimes as the parent you know you don't have a good uh, you know when 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 my eighth grader says to me mom if my grades are frozen in place and i'm going to high school next year no matter what i do why do i have to work to achieve I, that's I, a really good point how <laughs> <It's, it's, laughs> do you argue with that yeah you know it's, it's really dumb, but at the same time you know we are I am. You know, I keep thinking of so many clients that I represent, where I've participated in year after year after year of their IEP meetings, and the team and the parents work well together. I mean, I I'm sometimes involved for years on the client's um, case, not because there is a legal dispute, but because it's actually helpful to the team because we all sort of pay a little more attention, and the school district's lawyers there, but we're pretty collaborative, and it's a, a good group and a good team. Right? And I think about all these kids where I see the social worker and the school psychologist and the mother and the father and the outside providers who year after year after year have been working on, you know, irrational fears with this student, you know, and Mm. then trying to talk them through all on the same team, same language. This is how we're going to have. And now those Fears are pretty rational, you know, Mm. how do those adults reestablish trust when school reopens and this kid is flipping out about going into a school and flipping out about the germs and everything else. And it's not an irrational fear. And yet you still want to get the kid in school. I mean, these are the ways in which these problems are going to show themselves.
0: Yeah, that's that's really incredible. And So, Jen, you're you're a mom. You got your kids at home. How's it been for you?
1: (laughs) Uh, you (laughs) Staying on top of all that. Adolescent girls. Enough said. (laughs) I'm one of four girls, and my late father, who we referenced earlier today, is laughing every single time. I'm sure. I have two adolescent girls, yes.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. But that one argument was solid. I mean, you got to appreciate and that's, that's like a, it's a lawyer skill, right? Like oh, can,
1: it's it's kind of humbling when you raise <laughs> Where I say this all the time and Julie knows I, I spend all day negotiating with adults and all evening negotiating with children and they're probably effective <laughs> at
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must be doing something right then. Mm. Uh well, Jen and Julie, uh Jen Leviano and uh, Julie Swanson, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, is there any other stories or anything else you wanted to talk about? Just yeah.
2: lastly, it's it's you know we talked about the the inequity of, for many of those students who whether they have disabilities or they don't have disabilities where there aren't robust support systems at home or they may not even have Wi-Fi. They you know they they're not even able to access this distance learning, you know? And um, I know that's something that um, we at SEEK, Special Education Equity for Kids of Connecticut, are, 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 you know, really concerned about, as I think many people are. And I think that's another thing, as you said, it, it, under all of this, there's been a big light sh- um, shined upon that. And I think that's another thing we really need to get innovative about.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Dave. Dave, thank you so much for having us.
0: That was Jennifer Labiano. She's an attorney in private practice in Sherman, Connecticut. She represents children and adolescents with disabilities. Uh, She represents them in special education matters. And that was Julie Swanson. She's a special education advocate. We were just talking about what it's like for parents and for students with disabilities during these times. Isolated Together is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. I'm David DeRoche. I'm Director of Community Programming. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Podcasts. You can shoot us an email at QUPodcasts at QU.edu. Share some stories with us. We want to hear from you. We are isolated together, but we can get through this together. Thanks for listening.